This is Jess Hall, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, listeners, welcome back to the Cinematography Podcast. My name is Ilya Friedman. Uh, I run a company called Hot Rod Cameras. My co-host sitting next to me is Ben Rock. Ben, what do you do? Uh, I'm a director and a writer sometimes, and uh, I I do a lot of editing as well. And uh, this is a crazy thing right here because we're actually in the same room for the first time since the pandemic began, low these, what, 14 months ago. And we're sitting less than six feet apart and no masks. Yes, we do have a mask of sorts, though. It's in our bloodstream, and it's called our immune systems because we have both been vaccinated. Hey, you know, uh, we got a fun fan tweet the other day, and I think, Ben, you should pull that up because, you know, there, there's a certain je ne sais quoi. There's a certain something about it, which which fits, uh, I think, this moment perfectly. Would, would you mind reading it? Uh, sure, yeah. it was. I tweeted out when our War Stories episode went out because I had recorded my War Story. I don't know how long ago it was. But it was definitely in this building, so that means it was more than a year old. And so I tweeted out, finally, hear my war story, mine, many exclamation points. And Stas Shostak responded to me and said, not about your war story, but I discovered Cinepod a few months ago. And listening to it chronologically, it's so sweet to hear you saying in March 2020, March 2020, in one to two months when all this madness ends. Yes, that's right. In March 2020, I thought all this madness, the madness being COVID-19, it would be over. I was like, oh, yeah, we'll we'll be out of this freaking mess by, you know, July on the outside. Well, it was what our political leadership was telling us, too. <laughs> and, and who could ever argue with uh, that political leadership? Also, I, I should say that Stas also said, by the way, huge thanks for the podcast, even though I am a game dev Developer. Yes. Who occasionally shoots stuff for fun. Cinematography and movies always was my passion. And your podcast inspires me to shoot more and helps to set a better lighting in my games. Mm. That's cool. Nice. And overall, just fun and interesting AF, which is Gen Z uh, lingo for as fuck, as I'm told. Wow. I'm learning stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, we should all, us Gen Xers should learn from Gen Z. (laughs) Yeah, AF. Yeah, no, uh, thank you so much. Uh, that, that that really brightened my day, and uh, I did feel kind of like an idiot. I should have known better. I've done, uh, I, I actually sold a TV show once uh, based on the CDC, and uh, the beginning of our pitch, the opening of our pitch was the 1918 influenza outbreak. I should have known damn well that it wasn't going to be one to two months before COVID-19 was in our rear view mirror. Uh, I remember my wife actually saying she thought it would be July, and I just wish I had asked her what year. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's not totally in the rear view yet, but it's feeling like a big step in the right direction right now. I feel like it's in the side view and it's really close, but you know, the you know what you see in the mirror is is, is closer than they appear, yeah. and it's still really really close. So it's it's even closer than we think it is, but it's <laughs> it's starting to recess away, and we can do crazy uh, shit like being in the same room together and recording these host traps, which I have personally missed a lot. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that that we're here. I, I can almost smell your breath. It's great. 
It's uh, it's it's very uh, it, it, it's spindrift. Yeah. <laughs> it's spindrift flavored. It's uh, it's carbonated water. Uh, anyway, yes. <laughs> so Ben, who's on the show today? Uh, Jess Hall, who shot a little show. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe not. Maybe you've heard of it. Wandavision. Oh yes, Wandavision. Yeah, never heard of it. No, Holy no. crap. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I bet that was a, a fantastic interview. It's it's uh, already getting a bunch of Emmy buzz. It's like, yeah, yeah it sounds like you probably had lots to talk about. Definitely, but also some of his previous work included stuff like Son of Rambo, a movie that we don't talk about that much, but uh, I personally love. Like He's just done some amazing work over the years, and I think hopefully in talking to him and hearing this interview, it'll inspire some people to go check out some of his work, because his work has such a, a cool kind of handcrafted vibe to it, and WandaVision is going to explode him into uh, the next dimension, I'm sure, of being one of the most sought-after TV cinematographers. And, you know, in watching WandaVision, it's like he shot seven shows inside one show. Like, he had to create seven different looks. And he goes into a lot of the uh, detail about it. So uh, it, might have been, it might be more than that. Anyway. Did you guys talk about Hot Fuzz? We did talk a great deal about Hot Fuzz. Oh, yeah. good. I wasn't able to be there, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Also, his war story might uh, be Edgar Wright-related. Ooh. Ooh, fun. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. We'll have to wait to the War Story episode. Hey, Ben, you know, there's some interesting developments that have happened uh, in the last week. MGM looks like it's going to get bought by Amazon. Not surprising. Not surprising. Uh, and it's been kind of in the works for a while. I used to know this sleazebag manager who loved to tell people that MGM made two kinds of movies, James Bond movies and bombs. <laughs> Not flops. <laughs> no, no. He said bombs. Um, they also made some Rocky movies. Yeah, no, no. I mean, MGM's got a, a huge catalog. Pink Panther. Um, the thing about MGM is that they haven't been competitive with a lot of the modern studios for a long time, but they have enormous name recognition. And in my opinion, that's the reason for this acquisition more than anything, is that friggin' lion, that roaring lion at the beginning, because MGM doesn't own the James Bond franchise outright. Like, they don't have full ownership of that. And even like some of their best known titles, like The Wizard of Oz, is actually owned by Warner Brothers. Hmm. So, the thing about it is, it's the least surprising thing on earth that a technology company is gobbling up a major studio. And when you think about it, Disney, who is not a technology company but is an entertainment company, is having enormous success in the technology space with Disney Plus. So enormous. I mean, you know, again, we're going to be talking about. WandaVision, but it's like they've had two very successful seasons of The Mandalorian, one very successful season of WandaVision, and one very successful season of uh, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So they have kind of become the force to beat in this space, and Amazon has had some very well-received shows... But they haven't had like that out of the park movie, and they haven't they haven't had the the breakthrough water cooler moment. Exactly, and having a library of stuff, you know, like having the full James Bond library on Prime would probably be an enormous boon. I feel like, and this is just you know pedestrian me complaining about Prime. It's like Prime is the worst curated <laughs> motley crew of rando movies ever assembled. And so when I'm going through and looking at the TV shows and the movies on Amazon, in some ways they have so much more selection than anyone else, except for maybe Apple TV, because you can also rent stuff on there. But also it'll say like, you liked Skyfall, so you'll probably like Amazon Women on the Moon. And you're like, I don't see the connection there. 
Uh, nothing against Amazon Women on the Moon. I'm just saying, I feel like Amazon needs to overhaul their whole app. When you look at the way Netflix or Disney Plus or Paramount Plus, and any of them are laid out, it's way more logical, way more easy to get to the stuff that you're interested in. So. I got to give props to Hulu. I think they're doing a really great job with their interface. Amazon definitely feels, um, well, you know, there's there's probably some similarities to maybe like the working conditions in their warehouses. It feels like <laughs> very, very, you know, pedestrian or just not as intuitive as you might think. Uh, you know, Amazon's gotten a lot of heat lately because, of course, they don't have the best working conditions for a lot of their employees. And they also decided to put these things in that they call the mindful practice room. So, ostensibly, if an employee's having a hard time, they can go disappear into this uh, this room for a little while and meditate and feel better. But uh, Gizmodo has renamed it the despair closet and has uh, equated it to something out of a bizarre dystopian future. And the photo of it, it, it looks like that. And actually, they, Amazon had tweeted uh, a video about these closets and then has now since removed it. So maybe the practice of disappearing into this coffin-shaped sized box for a little while. I can just see that now at MGM, these are going to get installed there, maybe too. Maybe they'll have so. those on the James Bond set, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, I actually wouldn't mind having a despair closet in my house that I can use to just go escape for a few minutes. It's going to completely change the way work is being done at MGM, though, for sure. If Amazon comes in, it might become like a warehouse. It might become a <laughs> Well, I mean, my hope is that MGM then starts making more new stuff. But the thing that I always find interesting about these acquisitions and mergers, and frankly, sort of the technologization of the entertainment business, is that technology and I've complained about this multiple times, technology is very excited about the container and then like the things we're talking about on this podcast, the art, that's just the stuff, that's just the content that goes into this beautiful container that they've designed to make everybody all joyful and happy. And so a friend of mine made a movie for Netflix. He worked on it for years. It's on the splash page of Netflix for like two days and then it's just like lost. And you, you didn't see trailers for it on movies in the theater you didn't see promos for it anywhere. You didn't see, you know, there, in L.A. and New York, there might have been some billboards or bus ads or something like that. But it's like it comes in with no fanfare. It goes away. It's because it's content for this content mm. provider. Whereas like movies in the theater, movies on network television, movies for entertainment companies or anything for entertainment companies are treated differently. So my hope is that they let MGM run like an entertainment company and not like a technology company because nothing against technology. We all we're using it right now. But when we start treating entertainment like technology, I feel like the entertainment part takes the back seat to whichever genius coded the interface that we're playing it on. And honestly, I don't. I, that, those people are wonderful people, but I, that's not the the reason that I subscribe to stuff or want to watch stuff. Oh, really? You don't just go browse the interface for hours? I'm like so excited <laughs> about like, hey, I'm just gonna look at YouTube's player code. You know the the coding of the of the YouTube player of, of Vimeo versus YouTube. Yeah, but I feel like that's that's what's happening, and so it will be interesting to see. Do these do the technology wings of all of these? Because now you have NBC Universal with Peacock, you have Paramount with Paramount Plus, you have Warner Brothers with HBO Max. Like all of these things are kind of in the thrall of the technology world in the streaming wars, as it were. You know, books will be written about this in years to come about how this all ended up. So does MGM move the needle at Amazon? Does Amazon, since they're taking something that's a respected institution and they're and they're taking it over, they're buying it for what eight and a half billion dollars? How does that affect how they treat those films and how they treat any films on their platform? How's that for a hot take? 
That's a pretty hot take. All right. You know, I was going to say there is something actually rather dystopian on Amazon called Electric Dreams. It's a Philip K. Dick sort of anthology series. Oh, yeah. And there's an episode on there where one company has taken over everything on the planet. And it, it kind of feels like every time Amazon announces one of these acquisitions of, of some other thing or how they're expanding, it kind of feels like, you know, they are that single omnipole you know, company that is that's looking. You know, it's they're gonna they're gonna get into uh, dogs next. You want to you want a dog? Yeah, you can get your dog through <laughs> well, Amazon. They, I keep hearing rumors that Apple is gonna start making cars. So you know, <laughs> anything could happen at this point. <laughs> hey, hey, let's get to uh, let's get to your interview with Jess Hall. Here's Jess Hall. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here actually talking. I believe in Los Angeles. You're in Los Angeles, right? I am. Yes. Oh, that's unusual. Like, since the pandemic started, I feel like we've been talking to people everywhere in the world but L.A. Um, <laughs> we'd, we'd emptied L.A. Of, of people. But I'm talking today to Jess Hall, DP of WandaVision, a uh, little, little TV show maybe you've heard of, WandaVision, and a lot of amazing other stuff. Thank you so much for coming on the Cinematography Podcast, Jess. Pleasure to be here, Van. Thank you. So we are here first and foremost to talk about WandaVision. If during the year of COVID there could be a water cooler show, it is definitely the water cooler show. Everybody I know was, uh, you know, talking about it on, uh, on, on the Facebook and whatever social media. So congratulations for doing that. Let's kind of talk a little bit about it because WandaVision is like most TV shows uh, look like one TV show. WandaVision looks like 10 TV shows. I, I, I'm sure that you actually have it broken out somewhere into a legend of how many different different entire styles you went through in the creation of that show. But can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the style of it is kind of baked into the concept, but how did you approach it when you were first brought on or, or first spoke about working on WandaVision? How did you look at creating all of these different styles? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you're right to say that the style is sort of baked into the concept, but I guess that's just a starting point and really kind of, you know, what we deal with is the nuances, right? So mm -hmm. there was a long way to go with that. Um, and yes, that document you, you spoke of does exist. It's, it's seven different looks. Um, seven? Different, uh, yeah, across the I was only episodes. off by three. <laughs> yeah, a good guess. and it's, um, it goes down to, you know, what film stock the original shows of that period was shot on, what kind of lenses were used, the aspect ratios, whether it was a three camera show, a single camera show. So, I mean, I guess, you know, what I'm saying is there's a lot of research involved and it's always kind of a process that I do on every project, you know, that research um, process. But on WandaVision, it was a different task because, you know, it was, it was these different eras that I was having to kind of explore and to a certain extent represent in these different episodes. You know, working with Matt Shackman, who had been a child sitcom actor, was a huge benefit. Uh, mm -hmm. because he, you know, he brought a lot of knowledge of that form to the conversation. And, you know, he did what, what he called a sitcom boot camp with me, where we sat down in his office and he was like, okay, this is, you know, if we're doing a three camera show, you know, you want to be getting a wide shot and two shots or a medium two shot and two singles. And that's kind of how it's going to work. So Matt gave me some great books to read on, you know, the making of these different shows and a lot of history. And then, you know, the shows that he loved to watch. So there was all of that. I think one of the really formative moments for me, I was able to get a copy of a couple of uh, episodes of Bewitched on off oh, the wow. original negative 
actually, a print from the original negative. Oh, really? Uh, like yeah, the negative so, still exists? Yeah, the negative still exists. Oh, I, got wow. a, I got, a, got a hold of a print and I screened that. Um, I projected it uh, and I sat in the theater on my own and I watched uh, two episodes of that show. And uh, that was just like food for me. I was just <laughs> drawing that in. And, uh, I, <laughs> you know, I, I had a feeling like watching it, like this incredible kind of sense of nostalgia. I mean, I didn't grow up in the US, but there was something about the tonality of the images to me that was very resonant. And it just put you in this kind of comfortable space. And I think one of the reasons that that, that was, was, you know, it's obviously a number of things, but in particular, it was much warmer than I remembered it as a kind of black and white image. Like there was a real warmth hmm. to the whites. And I just sort of was very aware that, you know, we've seen a lot of black and white footage, you know, quite a lot of black and white movies shot recently, but I felt like there was always a kind of coldness to the, the contrast, if you like, and the white point there. And that's what sort of shifted me into kind of creating for the episode one, a much kind of warmer black and white, because I wanted that nostalgic kind of sense. So that was something that I carried with it. And then and in the middle of these shows, they had these commercials, which... <laughs> oh, my God, they're so brilliant. You know, like we did. You know, we had commercials in our shows, but actually in the middle of this this print, there was, uh, there was actually commercials. So I got to see oh. some, like, 1950s yeah, yeah, yeah. commercials. And that was also really informative because I could see how the language was being pushed in the commercials. And it, like, it clearly wasn't shot with the same infrastructure and crew as the episode was shot. It was like another you know, another unit yeah. that was shooting that and they were doing all sorts of interesting things. So yeah, um, you know, I could pick to like a, a, a number of these different, um, you know, research projects that I did, but that was certainly one which informed a lot of my process. Uh, and then like really kind of analyzing the vocabulary, both in terms of kind of camera syntax, but also equipment that was being used through the different periods of televisual history, if you like. Like, what was the early lighting that was used to shoot these live shows? How did that change when they moved into the 60s and they started to do single camera shows? And then, you know, the introduction of, of you know, color film and, you know, for the, for the 1970s era, you know, what was specific about those film stocks and how could I kind of intone some of that without trying to replicate it, you know, but kind of bring some of that value into what I was doing to create a sort of a language that was both familiar and kind of new for, for each episode. Was there any drawing or temptation to use older technology to get the looks that they created? Yes, and I did do some of that. I did, with the lighting, um, stick very closely to the period lighting instruments, particularly on episode one, two, and three. I did a lot of testing of vintage lenses, but I found that the vintage lenses were, A, they were very fragile, so I couldn't really modify them in the way that I wanted to. Uh, B, mm. there just weren't enough of them and they weren't consistent enough, you know, because the digital sensor was sort of so unforgiving. And, you know, each of these lenses was kind of, you know, variable. So I ended up actually constructing, you know, a custom, customized kind of set of, of vintage lenses based on the look of the early lenses uh, for episodes one, two and three. Like, were you rehousing old old lens elements? It was beyond rehousing. It was a completely new construction and the elements were actually new but they evoked the characteristics of the old lenses. So I think my favorite test, and I was kind of basically trawling through the Panavision vaults and pulling out these period <laughs> lenses and showing the test to, to Matt Shackman. And we both loved the look of like a, you know, a 1950s lens with a black Dior net on the back of it. But uh, that just wasn't gonna work to shoot a live show on three cameras. Um, there yeah. weren't enough of those lenses, it just wasn't possible. So. 
then I, you know, working with Dan Sasaki at Panavision, it was like, okay, well, we can actually build a new lens construction. We can get some of the elements of the old lenses, like the halation that I'm seeing in the highlights, for example, the fall off center to edge, um, some of the lens curvature. So taking those aspects from the period lenses, but actually building those into a brand new lens and then, you know, combining that with a, with a high-end digital camera, that was the kind of alchemy. Yeah. And it's, it's science meets art. It's all of that great stuff. We also did some fantastic modulation to the, the UP lenses, the ultrapanatar anamorphic lenses for the, for the later stuff. Mm-hmm. Because to me, that was sort of the reveal lens. You know, it's like you've been in these kind of period spaces and then, you know, you open up to the 240, you open up... Uh, you change the, the depth percep- perception into anamorphic field of view, uh, anamorphic perspective. And it's, it's sort of familiar to the audience because they know that from the Marvel movies. So, but we actually changed those lenses considerably as well. So, And I mean, I was going to bring that up, how the show works in the aspect ratio that is period correct to each one of the shows you're emulating, which to my eye was like, I love Lucy kind of era stuff and Bewitched era stuff. Yeah. And then like family, family time. There was also like a seventies one, like a good times or Sanford and son kind of a thing. Like, yeah, it, it, it it hits so many different, different looks, Malcolm in the middle. Um, you know, so in a sense, it's almost a show about television, which which is is. so meta and interesting. It's kind of, it's, it's in its own way. It is a kind of show about the history of television. I think that's absolutely right. And that's, that's sort of a way of seeing the show and a way of seeing the approach and the, the kind of work that went into creating the looks, actually. It was kind of really understanding, you know, how these shifts happened. Like, you know, what were directors looking at in the 1960s that made them yeah. suddenly decide to start using, you know, a key light on Elizabeth Montgomery and Bewitched that felt like a cinematic key light, you know? <laughs> you, you know, you're making her a kind of femme fatale almost, you know? And, you know, I mean, back to the, the period stuff for a moment, another of the really interesting journeys I went on was with the kind of period diffusion techniques, even, that the stuff that went in front of the lights, you know? And we found all sorts of, like, discontinued materials to use there. Oh, wow. Um, which also contributed to the look. So, yeah, it was it was a lot of different aspects that kind of came together and... In a way, it was like true cinematography and that. You couldn't just rely on the lighting. You couldn't just rely on, on the, the film stop, yeah. the lensing. It was everything. It had to be all these elements put together and then put through this, you know, this, this modern digital camera, which, you know, as we know, sees everything. And also, I feel like they barely did it in the first episode. It really only came in in the second episode where it's like we break the fourth wall and realize that this isn't happening, that this is like a weird projection of somebody's psychology or something that's taken humongous physical form, but that there is a world outside of it that's like the regular MCU and it and it fits right into the you know the rest of the MCU what was the thought when you broke out of there yeah. and you were in the quote unquote real world what were the things you were doing to differentiate it especially as you get later in uh, TV history and yeah. so the the TV shows don't look as different from modern filmmaking as the earlier ones did yeah so I mean I think that those sort of you know those unsettling moments are some of the most impactful moments in the show and I'm so glad you you picked up on those, you know, and, and it was levels of subtlety with which we use that. So I think in episode one, it's really pretty subtle. It, it kind of happens around the dining table where, you know, yeah. Wonder and Vision are sort of questioned about, you know, their past. And and suddenly you just start to, what I, what I did there was I just, I started to just increase the contrast in the lighting because you've been in this, in this kind of, you know, this lit space in this live TV show where the actors are walking mm-hmm. from one room to another and it's kind of broad, functional, multi-camera lighting. 
But then I started to kind of just create a little bit of chiaroscuro in the lighting to, to increase the contrast, to make the backgrounds go a little darker. And, you know, a little bit of camera movement and, you know, slightly different kind of compositions and framing just to kind of unhinge the audience and make them feel unsettled and and these were hugely kind of satisfying sequences to work on because yeah. you're really kind of getting to draw the benefits of that that comfortable place that you've put people in and to kind of un, unseat them and to add a, a kind of a tone of dissonance in there you know so episode two which um is kind of frolicking along in this magic show and all the rest of it and then you have this moment where Wanda and Vision walk outside and, and suddenly, you know, the camera is like it's one continuous tracking shot, you know. We're pulling back from them from the front door and, you know, it's a long extended camera move and suddenly we're into a more cinematic lighting, a more noirish yeah. kind of lighting and you see the beekeeper. And mm -hmm. that, you know, I've been looking at a lot of episodes of The Twilight Zone for that, just oh, the kind of tone that that sort of evokes. And that was something that, you know, had come up as a reference. So I think there, then when you, when you get into the later episodes and you start to shift, as you said, the distinction becomes less extreme. You know, the anamorphic lensing was kind of a key element because that kind of gave us a different sort of spatial sense, you know. So that was, I guess, a big part of it, trying to build contrast between these two environments. Yeah. One of the things that I also thought was kind of interesting about it is I sort of feel like every movie that got made in, in the entire MCU canon was sort of a conversation with Maddie Lee Batik and the original Iron Man, like the very first Iron Man. Right. And this was by definition something that went in a totally different visual direction than all of those. And, you know, I mean, it's like, obviously, you know, if you look at Thor Ragnarok or something like that, they're not, they don't, they don't look like Iron Man, but they all kind of had to sit in that same world. They all yeah. had to feel like pages from the same graphic novel. And this was like a different graphic novel. And granted, the stuff that happens out in the quote unquote real world in, in WandaVision probably would sit just fine next to all those other mm -hmm. movies. But the look was just radically radically different i'm assuming that that marvel was obviously marvel had to be on board because it's just so baked into the concept but were there any discussions with marvel that you know of that you were involved with about continuity or or intentional discontinuity with the mcu yes i mean i think you know that was always something that was definitely kind of in our mind and yes there were conversations i mean i think that you know it was inherent in the concept that it was going to be this big visual departure but I mean, yeah. credit to, you know, to Marvel and to the producers of the show, you know, how far they let us go with that. Because I mean, yeah. I think there could have been a version of this that was somewhat kind of pistache, if you like. Uh, this felt like we we're really going for kind of some authenticity, you know. And I think, you know, when, when Kevin Feige came out and said, you know, this is going to be the most avant-garde piece of content that Marvel have ever produced, I was like, okay, you know, great. That's, uh, <laughs> that's exactly what you want to hear, you know. Um, and also kind of terrifying because, you know, is this going to kind of be really upsetting for all the hardcore Marvel fans out there because it's such a departure? But I think the kind of development of the Marvel universe, if you like, and the move into kind of phase four with the streaming work really gave them permission to kind of take a big step, you know, and to take some risks. And I think it, it's, it's real credit to them that they, they did take some risks and they wanted this show to push boundaries. And, yeah. You know, it, there was definitely always conversations when you see a character like Vision, for example, pop up. Like, you know, 
you can't yeah. suddenly change the color of fisher you know he is yeah, yeah. he has to be recognizable and so i think there had to be a sort of respect for the ip which i certainly had and i i went back to the early um you know some of the early comic work as well to really kind of look at that and to try and take some inspiration from that as well as the film work and so i feel like what i was trying to do was was not only you know sit with the other movies but also draw something from from the comic book world which is so strong well congratulations again on wandavision thank you i would love to talk to you a little bit about the beginnings of your career because you've worked on some really interesting stuff I always want to know, like, what was the moment when cinematography, like, when was, what was the spark for you? What was the moment where you were like, that's a thing I could do? I mean, I think for me, um, you know, there wasn't like one epiphany. It was like, it was a concerto of like epiphanies. It was, it was <laughs> kind of, there was many, many moments I could pick on. Fundamentally, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a household where ideas were very important that I was brought up to believe that you should pursue something you really love doing and that that was really the way to get kind of satisfaction in life. And, you know, my dad particularly was very early on involved, you know, in like the 1960s, trying to find a way to like teach film at the British Film Institute. So he was very cognizant about some of the early ideas about film theory. And, you know, these were conversations that were kind of around, going around in the house. So I guess I was privileged to be exposed to the kind of individuals that were, you know, not necessarily in the conventional film industry, but certainly where, where film was a legitimate and important art form, you know, to be taken seriously and discussed. And that, you know, I think that popular culture was also important. It wasn't about a rarification of, of cinema. It was about, um, you know, this as a real popular culture, as important as high culture. So I guess there was always like that, that curiosity from a child of being exposed to this stuff. And then I was just a very visual kid. I mean, I, my sister would be, you know, buried in a, in a novel and I was always sketching, you know, I was always making imagery. Was, I was always going to be making images. It was just a question of what my format for image making was going to be. Interesting. And uh, I mean, did you, did you go to a school? Are you a film school person? Yeah, or, I did uh, go to film you... school. Yeah, I studied film, you know, at St. Martin's College of Art in London. And I uh, spent mm. some time in New York University as well. But, um, you know, my film school education was, was quite particular within the English art school system. And um, there was a great emphasis on experimentation. We basically had all the tools to kind of make the stuff. I mean, we had optical printers, we had 16 millimeter nice. cameras, we edited on Steenbeck, we actually processed our own film if we wanted to. And we had an incredible library of 16 mil prints, but like, you know, from the art, from the art side of cinema. So it was like Maya Deren, you know, Stan Brackage, you know, Salvador Dali, and that's what we were kind of exposed to. So it's kind of an unusual film education, if you like, but one that definitely was concerned with kind of boundary pushing. And that I think has always sort of stayed with me. Um, and a combination mm -hmm. of that and, you know, some of the more rigorous maybe work that I did at NYU has put me in this kind of weird in between, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> phase you know, film school and then just kind of got to shoot any way that I could, you know, any way that I could get hold of a camera. I, I worked in camera houses, prepping, you know, 16 mil camera kits for a while and, you know, shot you know, music videos and short films on the weekends. And just kind of wherever I could, I kind of shot film until I started getting a break. 
So I'm assuming you were like making shorts or, or yeah. lower budget features, music videos, commercials, kind of getting up to that moment. Like exactly. what was the moment that kind of broke you over into, into the world of being able to, to do uh, the features that you've done? And yeah. the features you've done have been like all really artistic and creative. So like, you know, this Maya Darren, Salvador Dali thing you're talking about makes total sense. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I was, you know, I was shooting anything I could shoot. You know, that was like, as you said, you know, documentaries, music videos. I mean, the interesting thing was, you know, coming out of St. Martin's. I mean, you know, we had like Joe Wright, Garth Jennings, um, you know, a bunch of great filmmakers, but a bunch of, bunch of really great music video directors as well. And that time of London was kind of a really incredible kind of cultural moment where the music scene was really taking off. So I got to shoot a lot of music videos and, you know, I think that was always quite an experimental form, but then kind of breaking into commercials as well. And I, I was dying to get my first feature script, but I wasn't really getting it. And I just kind of carried on, you know, waiting. I guess I saw a couple of things and thought, you know, that doesn't really interest me. But when I got the script for Stando, I was like, wow, this is really something I could do something with. And I, you know, I, I'm, I really want to shoot this film. And I got on a call with uh, the director and the reason that she'd kind of wanted to speak to me was she'd seen a sequence in a commercial that I'd shot, which was I'd shot day for night for a whole driving sequence. And I, you know, used a lot of dusk and magic hour to shoot this kind of driving sequence through Mexico, which kind of culminates in a, in a guy landing at a kind of dive bar. Um, and she just loved the look of that sequence. Um, it was shot on 35 mil, of course, at the time. That was what we were working on. And she said, you know, look, there's a sequence in standard, which I want to look exactly like the sequence that you shot in this commercial. Oh, wow. And, you know, talk to me about, about how you did it. So I, I sort of talked her through it. And the other thing I think that was really interesting about that script was I really felt like, you know, I had something to say politically about that script. I mean, it was... It was a true story set in apartheid South Africa, which to me was a huge part of, you know, the story and a huge part of the responsibility of bringing that story to the screen. And so I think getting into that kind of a conversation with Bronwyn made her feel that I was really invested in the material beyond just the kind of superficial image making, but actually the real kind of heart of the story. And of course, there was no, you know, Zoom in those days. So, you know, after um, a phone call, she hired me. And the next thing I was on a plane to South Africa, you know, um, oh, wow. doing shooting tests for a 1970s, you know, period film set in Johannesburg. <laughs> Well, I always think that's interesting, too, because I think that there's an easy perception that a cinematographer be kind of a gun for hire. But we were constantly talking to people who had a personal connection or had a personal response or, you know, felt like the movie really spoke to them. And that was why they wanted to shoot it. Well, and I have to ask you about about Son of Rambo, because that movie felt very I mean, it's it's fun and funny, but it also felt like a very personal project. Yes, and it is a personal project for, for Garth Jennings in particular. I mean, Garth uh, was actually studying at Central St. Martins. He was in the floor above the film department studying graphic design. His producer, um, Nick Goldsmith, was also studying there. You know, the editor, Dom, you know, was there too. And the stills photographer on the shoot, Maggie. So this was like a kind of a whole group of us that had been at college together. It was Garth's, actually the first script that he'd ever written. He ended up directing Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy before Son of Rambo, which he always oh, says yeah, he, yeah. he regrets. In fact, he'd, like, he'd rather have done Son of Rambo first, but 
he couldn't get I think get off the ground but it's it's very much an autobiographical for him you know he was that kid you know playing around with super eight cameras and his brothers you know yeah. um, in the back garden you know it's an incredibly personal project for Garth he is an amazing graphic artist who had um, storyboarded the entire movie uh, the first thing that he did when we met was uh, sit down and project storyboard frames for me in a dark room. And, you know, I immediately saw, you know, the, the entire movie laid out in front of me. I mean, it was incredible. I'm always curious when filmmakers are, you know, rely heavily on storyboards like M. Night Shyamalan or the Coen brothers or whatever. As a cinematographer, when you see that they already know all the compositions that they want, more or less, and maybe even have implied the lighting, what's the creative angle for you? And I'm not and I and I know that it's obviously very much there, but like what's the creative part of it that you bring to it if they already have figured out what I think a lot of cinematographers are brought on to figure out? Well, I think with Garth, you know, what what was clear and, you know, he was sketching quickly, you know, um, so they were kind of rough sketches, but what, what, what was more, it wasn't so much that we then replicated the frames that he'd made, but to me, what I saw was a very particular point of view, you know, and that point of view was a perspective. It was, a, you know, a, a compositional style, which really then kind of informed how I kind of carried that forward. So, you know, it was obviously framed for 240, but, you know, I then went out and tested, you know, all the different anamorphic lenses. Um, and one of the really interesting things about what Garth was drawing was he, you know, it was all about this kid and this kid's face and this proximity of this kid to the camera. So, you know, I yeah. found these anamorphic lenses that were basically primo anamorphic lenses. They're massive. Um, they were built in the 1980s, but they have like a two foot close focus. So, you know, I was able to kind of put the kid really close to the camera, um, but have this kind of massive world behind him. So you're both kind of existing within his world, but you're also kind of, seeing the world behind him and you know it's kind of a wide angle anamorphic lens but a close focus on the face in the foreground mm -hmm. and so then i did a bunch of tests and i found these lenses um these primo anamorphic lenses which had really close focus and i showed garth the tests and then the kind of film really found its own language. I mean, I don't think we ever looked at the storyboards again, or maybe we did a few times. Oh, really? No, no, we didn't really. It was really then, you know, the film kind of took off. And I think once we had that, that very basic kind of language in place, and we started working with the, the, the child actors who had, neither of them had, had been in front of a camera before. So that had its own kind of dynamic and needed its own mm. strategy. But it was, uh, it was interesting. It was, a, it was a, a film that I operated the camera on. And it was a very close proximity then between myself and these, these two boys, especially in terms of like the blocking and kind of, you know, the camera operating. But it really did find its own language. And so the storyboards were really a kind of signal of like the path to head down rather than a, mm -hmm. a template that had to be followed. And for the most part, that is how they work. I mean, you know, now we often are into previs and all this kind of tech vis even where lenses are really closely specified. But, you know, there's, it can only take you so far. I mean, when you're, you're in a real location and the light is doing its thing and, you know, the actor is doing their thing mm -hmm. and, you know, you have to kind of respond to that. And, I, you know, I loved, um, you know, Seamus was talking to you recently and, you know, he was referring to like the kind of chance elements that happen and, you know, taking advantage of those, those moments and being able to capitalise them. And, and that really is, you know, such an essential part of, of good filmmaking. And it's something that we have to be alive to. And if you stick rigidly to storyboards, then you can kind of squeeze the life out of something, you know? 
I always wonder about that. And, and uh, we have yet to talk to anyone who's shot a Coen Brothers movie, but I, I, I know people who've, who've been in them, uh, like a good friend of mine, Leon Russum, uh, has been in a few of the movies. And he said that they're very particular about like what they've, you know, what they've written and how they've planned. Mm-hmm. But they're also open to, mm-hmm. to things that happen outside of that. And I've also heard about M. Night Shyamalan being, you know, kind of very tied to the boards and, and yeah. they shoot the boards. But so I'm, I'm just always kind of interested in that because, yeah, when you get into the previs and the tech viz of it all, if if a sequence has been approved by everyone and then you're on the day changing it because of whatever your reasons are, you know, it then has to kind of go back up up the flagpole. Obviously, a movie like Son of Rambo to me isn't uh, a movie where, uh, you know, it, it, it feels like such a such an art piece. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what what was so much fun about it is it it doesn't yeah. you know, it, it, it doesn't feel it doesn't th- there's nothing corporate feel feeling yeah, about yeah. that movie. Yeah, no, um, I think that's very true. I mean, it feels very kind of handmade and that, and it does, you know, I think you feel the charm there, you know, and, and the kind yeah. of intimacy. Uh, and that is what's great about the smaller movies, the sort of the less people around, somehow the more intimate. And I suppose the, the fewer people are actually making decisions and the closer you get to some yeah. kind of, you know, authentic view, you know, some singular view, which which is important, you know, I think if a work's going to really be, you know, a powerful work. And, and kind of continuing on the on the thing about uh, storyboards, and I know I don't know if he's as much of a storyboard person, but I know he's like a very prepared director uh, working with Edgar Wright on Hot Fuzz, which is a brilliant comedy. And I, I mean, I guess I can sort of see the seeds of WandaVision in it because it's like mm-hmm. it's a it's it's a big comedy, but also it's wrapped up in a Michael Bay looking like it's got a different movie kind of hiding inside of it in, mm-hmm. a, in, a, in a fun yeah. way. And you worked with Edgar Wright, as far as I know, of twice. Once was on that and also once was on the hilarious trailer for the movie Don't that was part of Grindhouse, the Quentin Tarantino, uh, Robert Rodriguez (laughs) thing. Absolutely. I'm glad you've seen that. Oh, oh my God. I love that. No, no. I, I I love that so much. Well, uh, talk about don't. I, yeah. I, I feel like we've all heard a lot about Hot Fuzz. I, I, I still want to hear about Hot Fuzz. but And I, I kind of just want to get the vibe of, of yeah. what it's like to work with somebody like Edgar Wright because his films are so individual. Yeah, well, I think they are. And, um, you know, I mean, going back to your first point about storyboarding, I mean, Edgar is a huge storyboarder. Uh, and actually, Edgar probably for me is the most accurate storyboard to execution director that I've worked with um, because his editing style is so individual and it's really his own. Um, and you can see that, like he'll work with different editors, but it's still like an Edgar Wright sequence, right? So his brother was doing the storyboards, I think, when I was working with him. And I think Edgar's, the, you know, he handed me this, I think it was like a two inch thick document, which was the, the movie, you know, Hot Fuzz storyboarded. And yeah, he, he knew what he wanted to do. We, he's extremely well prepared and extremely precise. And I think what's really interesting is, you know, he combines these kind of extreme close-ups, you know, this whip pan into kind of a moving shot. You know, it's a very sort of, um, you know, if you execute that sequence as storyboarded, it's going to be, he's going to be happy with it, you know, for the most part. So they really do mean a lot um, in Edgar's work. Uh, you know, he likes to work fast and he likes to get a lot of setups because, you know, it's, an, it's, a, it's a hungry kind of a, a pace you know that movie and his movies are you know they're hungry for cuts you know so you have to feed it with a lot of a lot of cutting you know uh, I mean I, I know that we're doing 30 plus setups uh, a day on hot fuzz you know famously we did 55 setups one day um, oh wow you know Edgar wanted us to shoot fast and to shoot a lot of setups and you know we were we were cranking it out we were working very quickly but there was particularly the 
the sequence in the fight sequence in the in the supermarket you know he came to me and he was like you know i want to get like you know more than 35 setups today tomorrow the next day shooting and i was like okay you know you know let's go for it and he my son at the time was about four years old and was a massive already a massive star wars fan and edgar um had actually been uh, you know, courted by Lucas uh, for some, some work uh, upcoming. And he had given him a couple of these custom limited edition lightsabers. And Edgar said, you know, if you get, you know, 35 plus, you know, I'll give you the Darth Vader lightsaber for your, for your son, you know. So I was like, right. So we went into that day's shooting and I think we did, you know, like 37 or 38 setups and I got this treasured uh, lightsaber, which I gave to my son, which he then didn't stop playing with for like 10 years. Um, and then a couple of days later, Edgar sort of, you know, pulled me up after the end of the day shooting and he's like, you know what, I've got another lightsaber. I've got this Mace Windu one that, that Lucas gave me. And, you know, you can have that, you know, if we get more than 50, 50 setups, you know. We did. We got 55 setups the next day and I got the lightsaber and then, you know, me and my son like basically, you know, dueled with these lightsabers, but it was his favorite game kind of growing up. So, yeah, that's my Edgar Wright tale and the many setups that we achieved on Hot Fuzz. That's amazing. So like when you're doing a day where you have like 50 plus setups, because Edgar Wright movies, you know, aren't just hungry, you know, they're not just cutty, but like the imagery is always really solid and Hot Fuzz doesn't yeah. look like a movie that was in any way rushed. How do you go about kind of maintaining the quality of the lighting and, and, and the quality of your work and also work at that kind of an intense pace? Um, it was it was difficult. I mean, I, I definitely on hot fuzz. There were days when you know I, I struggled to to kind of make that happen. Um, but I think you know I'm kind of a naturalist for the most part, or I start from a point of naturalism. So I'd kind of would try and light the room, you know. And then you know I had very good camera operators, you know, that I brought on Pete Robertson, who's a who's a great a camera operator, and actually Pete Field who have done, worked on a lot of the bonds, actually. Oh, so wow. I have these two great kind of camera operators to deploy, you know. So and action guys, though, like people action who, guys, who are in, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. it was an Which action comedy. Yeah. yeah, I wanted yeah. to bring that language to, to the film because to me, you know, I mean, Edgar, one of the things he did, he gave me like 30 DVDs and he was like, you know, watch these. This is like the movie. I mean, you said sort of Hot Fuzz is a movie within a movie. It's kind of got about three different movies buried in it. <laughs> you know, it has a buddy movie. It has, you know, an action movie. It has, you know, like you said, Michael Bay. Um, it, it, it's a number of specifically different kind Bad of Boys too. Yeah, and, and what it also has is um, it has Dario Argento uh, buried in there too. You know, in some of the horror stuff. So, um, oh, I never thought know, about that. Yeah. So I was which, watching. Which Argento did you watch? Which, which Argento um, was the touchstone? I think Bird with uh, Crystal Plumage and Suspiria. I think, uh, which nice. are two of my favorites. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was there was a number of different references. It's it's kind of a really a postmodern movie in that sense. So we were basically mixing it up style wise, you know. But I wanted to bring these action camera operators in there so that we could do the action sequences like really well, you know. So they felt like they were really action sequences worthy of you know those movies that we were intoning, and that helped to help me to work fast. But you know, like a lot of good planning, you know. Like I said, Edgar was very well prepared. And, um, you know, I, I was kind of forgiving where I had to be with the lighting. I mean, there was a certain level that it had to go to. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was, you know, it, we had to get the work done and there was a little bit of compromise involved sometimes. 
<laughs> That's great. And uh, I mean, is there anything to say about Don't? I mean, Don't is brilliant. And if, if for people who haven't seen it, I, I can't I mean, Don't I'm, was, I'm sure it's online somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Don't was hilarious. I mean, in a way, it was kind of I was doing some of the stuff that I, you know, I, I carried on doing on, on, on the period stuff with WandaVision, you know, pulling out these kind of mm-hmm. 1950s lenses. But but it was shot on film. And, you know, we, we shot it over a couple of days uh it was it was a very kind of a loose you know approach to the to the shooting we just kind of we'd have these actors who were giving their time you know it's made for very little so we had the actors for a kind of you know a few moments and we kind of we just kind of blasted out but um <laughs> but certainly it was sort of like you know anything went it was like you know you're permitted to kind of do a dutch angle and zoom and kind of you know panic light across the scene i mean it was <laughs> it was sort of it was, it was the restrictions were off i mean it was a uh, hot fuzz had its kind of a, a level of restraint and kind of sophistication i feel like with don't you know we were kind of really going for the genre you know in a kind of quite a flamboyant way which was fun and again much like with hot fuzz i never really thought about it but i i feel like it does wandavision makes sense for you because you are able to kind of completely jump into these other genres and kind of play in other genres so we had over the last year we had wally fister on the show uh talking and we did talk to him a little bit about his directing but obviously we're mostly talking about his cinematography and i don't know if you heard the episode but he talks a whole lot about roger corman which to me i can just hear Mm -hmm. people talk i can listen to that forever It's, it's just fascinating the roger corman days but you shot for him and uh you shot Transcendence and Transcendence was a movie that was sort of made I guess he was sort of transitioning out of being a DP around-ish mm-hmm. that time but he was still shooting. I'm always interested when people shoot for other DPs and I tend to get a similar answer but I'm just curious what was it like kind of stepping into a, a project where you're shooting for someone who's you know Oscar winning you know one of the top DPs in the world at that moment. I mean it was a great sort of compliment to be asked so that was kind of nice I think um, it was also a very singular experience. It was not like, you know, any of the other experiences I've I've had working with other directors. But I mean, ultimately, there was a real shorthand, which was kind of very useful. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. because of, uh, you know, of the understanding, like, you know, we were able to kind of just say like, yeah, you know, I, I want this scene, you know, to look like this, you know, three stops under, you know, whatever. I mean, there was a technical shorthand um, mm-hmm. that came with that, which was, was kind of useful for communication. But I suppose one of the interesting angles to that whole process was seeing how another DP works, you know, or, or thinks, because it's not something you really get exposed to in this yeah. job. You know, normally you, don't, you might work with a second unit director, or unless you've sort of apprenticed for a cinematographer, I don't know how you'd really get that, um, you know, or intern for a long time and been close to, or maybe if you're their assistant, you really watch how they work. But I, I'd never had that experience. So for me to see how a cinematographer works to get an end result was really interesting because I think the end result for me and Wally was quite similar. We both ultimately like the feeling of natural light, but we like kind of stylized natural light to a certain extent um yeah, yeah so he'd seen brides had revisited which he really loved and he was like you know that 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 movie turned me on to your work and i i there's things about it i really like and a lot of it was this kind of stylized naturalism so although we have maybe like a similar kind of end target 
you know, I think our process is, is very different. So yeah, I mean, different processes leading to the same result. So for example, you know, technically I, you know, we're shooting on 35 millimeter anamorphic photochemical finish with no DI, which was, you know, the workflow that he'd done on all the Chris Nolan movies, you know, hugely successfully. And that's, that was kind of what we were doing. So, you know, exposure becomes kind of critically important. You're watching print dailies, which are very unforgiving, projected every night. And you know, you're, you're doing a, a photochemical finish. So you need to be very accurate in all, in all your work. Um, you can't rely on a DI to kind of, you know, solve problems. But I, I use a spot meter um, and, and Wally is like favors an incident light meter. So, you know, he'd see me with a spot meter, which is, you know, reading reflective light, you know, coming off surfaces versus the incident light meter, which, you know, reads light falling onto surfaces. And you'd be like, oh, you don't need that. You don't need that. And like, yeah, this is kind of, this is, this is what I use, you know. So I'd have to kind of put that away. And, you know, and then, you know, when he wasn't looking, I'd kind of get it out and read my values. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, the movie, you know, is some sort of balance, visually a balance between, I guess, his taste and mine. But I think, you know, I was definitely able to bring my own taste into it. And then ultimately, he was very um, enabling with that and encouraging with that, you know, once he saw, um, you know, print dailies that he really liked. Um, well, cool. So I think that's an amazing place to leave it. Before we go, is there a place that people can find your work online or a website or Instagram or something where you chat with people? Yeah, I, um, you know, you can find me at my website, jesshalldop.com. And then my Instagram, I go under my DJ name, which is Metro Rat. <laughs> that's, that's, another awesome. whole, that's another whole aspect, which we haven't talked about. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that in, in our follow-up. Thank you so much, Jess. It's, it's amazing to meet you. And again, congratulations on all of your work. But, you know, most recently with WandaVision, it's just, you know, an amazing, an amazing piece of work that I think people are going to be looking back on for <laughs> decades. They're going to be referencing it forever. Thank you, Ben. It was great talking to you. All right. So that was Jess Hall. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, Jess. Uh, everyone go out and uh, check out WandaVision if you haven't. Uh, if you've got Disney Plus, it's a really amazing show. Uh, one of my personal favorite parts of the MCU. And now, short ends. So Ilya, it is that special time of our show where we do our pet obsession of the week. Okay. Well, uh, my pet obsession this week is actually something that's about uh, 10 years in the making. Your son? No. Oh, no. No, no, he's 12. He's 12. No, not at all. My pet obsession this week is about 10 years ago, I came across this little tiny flashlight. It's a flashlight that has a gooseneck and has interchangeable parts to it. And I thought to myself, wow. This is like a perfect lens light. Something that camera assistants use when they're on set is a lens light. And uh, usually camera assistants don't own it. It comes from the rental house because you're often working in the dark and you need a little light exactly where the focus distance marks are engraved on the side of the lens. Of course, now people have wireless remote systems that have illuminated dials and things like that. So there are some easier ways to see in the dark. But for someone who's actually pulling focus off of the lens or off of a follow focus, it can be really, really hard to see when you can't have stray light. And this little tiny flashlight has a tiny beam of light. It's not particularly bright. And because it's got a gooseneck and these interchangeable ends, you can put it kind of right where you need it. And it's got a white light and it's got a, a blue light. And I bought a case of them. I bought a case of them because because it was so small, I thought, I'm going to make this light. I'm going to make an adapter for this light that allows it to work inside of a 15 millimeter lightweight airy rod 
space. And I've always got one of those somewhere near the top of the camera. I can clamp it into that and voila, now I've got a little lens light that I can own myself. Uh, usually they're hundreds and hundreds of dollars if you, I mean, there was a couple of companies that made them for the rental houses and I think they were like 350 bucks or something like that. This little one runs off of watch batteries. It lasts a long time. You click the button once and it turns on. You click the button uh, again and it turns off. It's not one of those ones you have to hold on or anything like that. So I bought a case. Uh, it set me back a fair bit of money and I have 35 of these and I act actually now 10 years later built the little 15 millimeter rod adapter and, oh wow and it's called the ac buddy it's this little light it's a little buddy for the for the ac you can put it in your bag you can put it on your camera and i'm Ooh, gonna I wanna I, see it i'm gonna i've got it downstairs i'm gonna sell them for 99 bucks there's only 35 that's it once they're gone they are completely gone so if uh i haven't even put them on the website yet so next week or so uh, i'm giving a little exclusive to podcast listeners uh no one else who hasn't walked into the store has has even seen it so for 99 bucks if you wanted to have a uh, cool lens light we will have something up on the website next week i have a feeling it's going to sell out really quick just because lens lights are not one of those things it's super limited edition because of course the light that i purchased for this is no longer available so i'm gonna have to if i if i'm gonna continue with this i gotta figure out something else but it's got a magnet on the end it works really well so anyone who's a camera assistant or if there's a camera assistant in your life and you think they might want a cool little lens light, uh, you know, next week, Hot Rod Cameras. Yeah, you can pick it up. The AC buddy. It's a stocking stuffer in July. <laughs> it totally is. I want to see that. And if it's enormously popular, can you figure out a way to make more of them? Yes, I can. But I'm going to have to do a little research or maybe have to remanufacture this light, which is mm. no longer available. So Interesting. Yeah, most people, when they want a flashlight, they want a bright flashlight. When you're a camera assistant, you don't want a really bright light. You want a very uh, specific light that is in, a, in one spot and not everywhere. You need to just pinpoint light in one spot, and it shouldn't be bright so as not to distract actors or actually cause some sort of exposure yeah. change or distract the you know the camera operator. Have a weird reflection that's yeah. like hitting the back wall for no reason. You need just a little tiny light in just the spot that you need it, and that's it. So, Ben, uh, what's your short end this week? My short end is uh, it's something kind of interesting that I realized I've been like following uh, studiously every every week since they started doing it. It's a YouTube. What's well, part of a YouTube channel called Joe Blow Videos, and I must have subscribed to them or just fell into their algorithm some time ago. So they're doing a series called James Bond Revisited. And they are going through every James Bond movie ever made, starting with the original Dr. No. And I think they even did the weird ass Peter Sellers, David Niven, Casino Royale. And they also did Never Say Never Again when Sean Connery sort of kind of came back as James Bond in a Thund- in a movie. Thunderball that was, remake. Sort yeah, of, yeah, it's totally a, a remake of Thunderball. And it was because of some weird contract that they were able to make it. And it's the only James Bond movie that wasn't made under like the Cubby Broccoli banner at the time. So they're going through each one and they kind of like talk about the plot, the action, how James Bond is or isn't, the Bond girls, girl or girls, the music, you know, and kind of give it an overall score. And it's kind of interesting because James Bond movies were something that I I always bonded over with my dad as a kid. And I remember like going back when video stores first became a thing and renting all of the old, old James Bond movies, which are weren't really even that old, but they were from the 60s and I'm watching them in the 80s. So it's sort of like watching something from the 90s today. So like, so <laughs> exactly. Like I'm that. saying they were as old or or less old than The Crow is today. 
But anyway, like kind of going through them and kind of remembering, because like, you know, they all kind of blend together to a degree. Like in your mind, they might wash together as like, here's the Sean Connery ones and here's the Roger Moore ones, or here's the George Lazenby one, <laughs> <laughs> or here are, you know, the two Timothy Dalton ones or whatever. And uh, they, they're going through all of them pretty extensively and kind of talking about how they were written, how they were produced, who directed them and why how much money they made, and it's a pretty thorough exegesis of James Bond uh, movies. Right now, like uh, as of this week, they have finished the Pierce Brosnan uh, run with uh, Die Another Day, I believe was was that one. Mm-hmm. Not a great note for Pierce Brosnan to have gone out on, but no one, I don't think anyone has ever said Pierce Brosnan, none of it was his fault. Like, you know, he, he's an amazing actor. Anyway, I just find it really interesting, and it's interesting also to kind of like go back and see how societal norms and filmmaking technique and style and stuff like that have sort of changed how James Bond has kind of reflected the culture of its time. You know, like, for instance, when they're talking about Pierce Brosnan, they're talking about how Pierce Brosnan movies were going up against like Tom Cruise in the Mission Impossible franchise and also taking cues from, you know, the action movies of the 90s or the Timothy Dalton ones, which were kind of a response to big action movies like Die Hard that were happening around the same time. And you kind of see how they kind of ride trends, how they set trends, you know, how they how they do what they do. And it even inspired me, even though they haven't gotten to any of the newer Bond movies, I went and watched uh, just the other day, I watched Skyfall again. I hadn't seen it since it was in the theater. And uh, I think that movie holds up just damn well. It might be the, my favorite James Bond movie ever made. But anyway, I think it's a, it's a cool uh, YouTube series. And if you are inclined to liking that stuff, I highly recommend it. Cool. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. So anyone else who wants to go check that out too can go to camnoir.com and click on the link to go check out uh, Ben's short end this week. All right. So Ben, I think that's it. I think that uh, we, we we fulfilled our obligations. For, oh my God! <laughs> I know. Can you believe it? For it's enough? so weird. And did it in record time. And wow, you know, we were in the same room. And as far as I know, neither of us are going to die now. So <laughs> neither of us should die of COVID. At we're least both, of COVID. we're both going to die. We're what? Both, we're both slowly what? dying. Says who? Mortality is still a thing. It was just exciting to do this without Zoom and uh, knowing full well that we were both wearing pants. Yeah, that's right. Well, hey, I, what are you talking about? I was wearing pants every time we've done oh, this. Oh, uh, so was I. Oh no! <laughs> you, you, now you've given me a, a mental image that uh, <laughs> gonna have to gonna have to shake. All uh, right. Well, let's say where where people can find you, Ben. Where can people find you? Oh, people can find me at benrockonline.com. That's uh, probably the the hub of uh, everything. I, I, I or keep, Twitter. I keep seeing people on uh, uh, adding Linktree to their Twitter, and I thought, should I do that? And I'm like, nah. I got my website. My website's got all my links, so you can find my Twitter and my Instagram and. LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever the hell you want. You can go look at my IMDb stuff. Good times. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over here at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. I'm here on Memorial Day doing uh, doing labor when uh, the rest of the shop is closed. You and so, me both. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like work. It's 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 really nice. I, 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 I haven't doing... seen we haven't seen each other in person in over a year. I was gluing like the rubber carpet edge stuff on carpet on the floor before you got here. So I was actually doing something slightly slightly more labor intensive than 
than these host wraps. That's fair. Okay. That's fair. But, uh, but yeah, you can find it me over at Hot Red Cameras. We sell all manner of camera equipment, cameras, uh, stuff from uh, the high end of the industry, like Airy and Cook and Zeiss and that sort of stuff, and then introductory level stuff and stuff for you know uh, students. So we, we kind of run the whole gamut. We're diverse. <laughs> <laughs> so let's thank some people now. Uh, let's first off thank Alana Cody, our amazing intrepid producer who keeps kicking all the ass and getting us such amazing interviews. Oh, yeah. We, we got a great one next week, too. Like, I don't even want to spoil it, but it's like, yeah, we got another great, great one next so week. So awesome. An interview that, like, I, I couldn't have been more excited to do. Like, like, maybe has something to do with the number one movie in the country. I don't know. Perhaps. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. We should also thank uh, Ben Katz, our editor, who his job will change this week because he won't be getting two separate files from two separate people. That's right. And let's thank Kay Zalatrachi. Who will not listen to this episode. I don't know. Maybe he's a fan of WandaVision. He might be a fan of WandaVision. You never know. But he he created uh, all of the music that you've heard in this episode. Check him out at musicbykays.com. That's K-A-Y-S. All right. I think that's going to do it for this week. See you next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.